Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hi, I'm your host, Misty Little, and I am coming to you from the vernal equinox on the northern hemisphere. It's finally spring. I know some of you guys are still buried under snow, so I do apologize, but we've had lots of wonderful weather here recently. Everything's greening out, and the daffodils are past their prime, but the wildflower season is really just beginning. We have blue bonnets and paintbrushes and galardia blooming, and all the roadsides are just turning into a, a field of color. And if, if you've been to Texas, we're kind of known for our wildflowers along the roadsides. People make trips to certain areas of the state to get out of their car and take pictures with the fields of blue bonnets. And you can really thank Lady Bird Johnson, the uh, former first lady, for that. She really came back and had this huge beautification project of. Um, trying to spread wildflowers and along the highways and it's really taken off <laughs> you can have can't really go anywhere without seeing a lot of wildflowers this time of year um so it's very it's very pleasant I'm, I'm very happy we're heading towards spring i just had my first monarch sighting over the weekend i saw quite a few down near the coast and then as we came back into the driveway i saw one over on my milkweed and you know my milkweed isn't isn't too big yet. It's getting bigger. <laughs> but sure enough, I went and checked all of my milkweed in the ground and the ones I have in containers. Uh, and there were eggs all over them. So I ended up plucking about 10 or 11 off to bring inside to hatch out. And because I don't have a ton of milkweed right now, it is early in the season. And we had all the setbacks with the freezes earlier in uh, January, early February. It's been a little bit of a slow start for the milkweed, but the monarchs are here and I'm going to hatch out what I can and other ones are just going to have to fend for themselves. I do apologize. Sorry, monarchs. I can't help you all. Um, But the neighborhood milkweed is also doing really well and has monarch eggs too. So if I, if I run out of milkweed, I think I may run around the corner and, and pick some of the the neighborhood milkweed just to, to help out if I can. So monarch season is in full swing. I checked journey North. It's a website that kind of tracks monarchs, but hummingbirds and a few other species. I, I haven't really checked the other maps to see how well, um, filled out they are, but the monarch map is pretty helpful and you can log in yourself and note when you were seeing your first monarch or just any monarch sighting, um, they also track milkweed and um, monarch eggs too. So check that website out. But so far, there seems to be two kind of pathways up the center part of Texas through the the, the uh, hill country and then up along the coast into the Houston area. There's a big conglomeration of monarchs coming in that pathway too. So it's pretty exciting. I honestly don't remember seeing monarchs this early last year, I feel like I didn't see my first monarch in the garden until maybe May or June. And I, I didn't even have eggs or notice any eggs until August. So kind of interested to see how this dynamic works this year. Just something interesting for me. Um, another note before we get started into today's episode, I wanted to pass on a person, people to follow <laughs> my friends, Mark and Eliana. And they are known as Birding by Bus on Instagram and Facebook. And they are traveling from Miami to Alaska on a road trip in their VW bus. And they did a trip in 2008 
kind of in a similar manner. This time is more specifically and more hardcore birding. They're birder nuts. <laughs> they love to bird. And they are going to get married in Alaska in June. So this is kind of a 10-year reunion anniversary kind of road trip, but they're also birding. And I really, really wanted to podcast with them while they were here because I wanted to talk about their trip. But they also um, recently had a huge landscaping project in their yard in Miami, restoring, well, I wouldn't say restoring, but trying to mimic the pine rockland habitat of Miami. It's a pretty endangered habitat. And that's kind of where they live in the Kindle area of Miami. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about birding, but we had such a short amount of time. We spent a lot of time birding and, and going to the beach and they had to do some, some work on their bus and just, you know, catching up with them. So I didn't quite get a chance to podcast with them. I'd like to maybe try to have them on when they return from their trip next year to talk about all of this good stuff. But I did want to pass on their handles on Instagram and Facebook. So if you would like to follow them, I know they would love to have the interaction. If you have questions about anything they're doing on their trip, Eliana loves to, 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 to feel those kind of things. And she's, she's been asked me to, to, <laughs> to tell her what other things might be of interest. And I know for and the hiking experience that I have, a lot of people are just curious, just on the basic everyday day-to-day life. So I think she's going to be trying to post some more about that, what, what they do in their bus. So go check them out and uh, tell them hello and tell them I, I sent you over there. Now, today's episode is about foraging. And my guest is Dr. Mark Vorderbruggen. And you may know him online as Merriweather. And if you've ever been if you're in Texas and you've been Googling plants, you may have come across his website, foragingtexas.com. And I actually came across him several years ago when I was actually looking for a paddling down the San Jacinto River. And I came across a outdoor blog he used to have about hiking and camping and that sort of thing. And it linked to his website, Foraging Texas. And his that website is a excellent compendium on pretty much the most common edible plants you could find in Texas that, or medicinal plants you could find in Texas. And it's such an awesome website, tells you all sorts of good things. It's, it's, it's an encyclopedia of knowledge. So I would definitely recommend hopping over there after you listen to this episode and checking that out. Now, last November, I happened to also take a couple hour class with him and Julie Rohr, um, garden keeper. She was my guest earlier in this season. We went over to one of his classes at Washington on the Brazos and kind of got a better feel for foraging plants. And it really helped me to actually have someone showing me these plants and kind of, you know, giving that pat on your back. It's okay. You can, you can eat this. It's, it's okay. <laughs> and it's not that I didn't know some of these plants were edible. It's just, I don't know. You'll hear him talk about it. It's okay. If, if you know it's edible, you go for it. Um, but he explains all the kind of basics on learning to forage, some kind of precautions, but also some just kind of ethics of foraging as well that I think is very pertinent in today's social media foraging aspect. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And if you have any questions, he has several um, places where you can shoot him an email or DM him a plant ID or, you know, pop on his Facebook group and 
ask questions and get support from other foragers. And last but not least, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit subscribe. You can hit subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or follow in an RSS reader from my from the podcast website. You can also subscribe to my podcast uh, newsletter. It's right there on the gardenpathpodcast.com. You can drop me an email at gardenpathpodcast at gmail.com and find me on Instagram at the garden path podcast. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, well, yeah, I guess we'll just get started. If you want to, I guess, tell everybody who you are and kind of some background on how long you've been foraging and why you're still a crazy, cool forager person today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, hi, everybody. My name is Mark Vorderbrogen. Most people know me as Merriweather. That's the name I guess given many years ago by my friends uh, that I used to go hiking with. Uh, the reason they called me Merryweather is because I was always recording the plants that I was finding as we were out in the wild, which, if you remember, your history was what Merryweather Le- Mary Lewis was supposed to be doing when he was looking for the Pacific Ocean. Right. For the last 10 years now, I've been teaching foraging classes, but my experience with foraging goes back to my earliest memories. The... Uh, Hanging out with my mom out in the wild, collecting all sorts of different greens and berries and everything uh, up in central Minnesota. And that's where I originally learned on the forage, just through my parents' activities. Right, right. So, and how did they, how did they learn foraging? Were they just something they were raised with well, and they passed it on to you? Pretty much. Uh, both of my parents were children of the Great Depression. And one of the ways the small farming communities up there got through that terrible time was through their knowledge of wild edible plants. That knowledge was still very common, uh, especially through my grandfather on my mom's side. And so you know, that was a, just a standard food source. My mom actually hates the fact that I teach these classes. She's horribly embarrassed by it. Because oh. the reason we continue to do it, and the reason I know it, is we continue to be poor growing up. And so we figured about 30% of our food actually came from the wild. Okay. So so she still thinks that as a, it's a poor thing and that mm-hmm. she should phase that out. <laughs> exactly. Well, have you shown her some of the books out there with the foraging? Uh, pretty high class kind of these days. <laughs> Yeah, she doesn't believe it. <laughs> well, it is still, I mean, as much as it is being covered on blogs and and internet, you know, social media, I still think it's pretty a niche thing to do. I think most people aren't really foraging as much as uh, maybe it seems to be. <laughs> yeah, well, and there's also a lot of fear. Most people are convinced that nature, every plant is poisonous or has a snake underneath it or something like that. Right, right. So you went from, you know, exploring and writing down all these plants and what compelled you to start your website and really just get going on educating uh, other people about foraging? Before www.foragingtexas.com, I had a blog devoted to hiking and kayaking and camping in Texas. And it was mildly popular, but the 
posts that got the most attention were when I talked about the different wild edible plants I was finding. And I ended up getting people uh, contacting me to say, hey, will you, you know, go camping with us or go hiking with us or things like that. And then finally, they even complete strangers started offering me money to go for a walk in the woods with them. It's like, yes, I can do that. <laughs> so you're like their so, little their guide to go foraging. Yep. Yep. And eventually the Houston Arboretum got wind of it and they contacted me to see if I would be one of their adult educators. And uh, that was in 2008. And that's when it really exploded. And I started the website as a kind of a study guide for the students that had been through the Arboretum class. Mm-hmm. But it's taken on a life of its own. Yeah, it's a very handy guide. I've I've gone to it many times over the years, even if I'm just not looking for something to forage. If I've Googled a plant and your website comes up and it's very handy. <laughs> so cool. So um so foraging etiquette and basics, can you kind of in your class that I took with you, uh, you had a lot of do's and don'ts. Can you run through those? Sure. Uh, What I tell people as a forager in the state of Texas, uh, you basically have to respect four things. You have to respect the law, you have to respect the land, you have to respect the plant, and you have to respect yourself. Uh, Going to the law here in the state of Texas, going back to the sheep and cattle wars of the 1800s, they put laws into place that you are not allowed to take plant material from a piece of property without the property owner's permission. I'll tell you right now, you will not get permission in most parks. They're afraid you'll either eat something wrong and poison yourself, or you'll just vandalize the park. So you're limited to private property, and you need permission. Uh, To respect the land, it's simply, please leave no trace. Um, I teach about once a month at the Houston Arboretum, and I'm still astounded at how many candy wrappers and water bottles and worse are dumped on the side of the, the path. Please don't do that. With respect to the plant, uh, we want you to harvest sustainably. You want to harvest in a way that year after year after year, those plants will still be there. And this involves things like knowing how much of a particular plant you can take. If you go to the Foraging Texas website, one of the things for each plant is its abundance code, which tells you, you know, of the plants available, can you take you know, 50% of the plants, 10% of the plants, just take a picture of the plant or things right. like that. It depends on you know, how much of the plant is around, how common it is in Texas wild. And then finally, the respect yourself is simply please don't eat anything poisonous. And that means first positively identify the plant, but also once you've identified the plant as an edible plant, make sure the, the soil and the ecosystem which it is growing is also safe. There are no toxins in that. Right, right. Um, So that would mean like not foraging on the side of the road necessarily in the middle of downtown Houston. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Around old buildings that might have been painted with lead-based paint. And tell people, you know, like old farmhouses back up 20 feet, 25 feet. Right, right. Um, now, going back to the respecting the plant, have you seen populations of plants that you foraged before? And have you gone back and found them decimated? No, luckily, not so much here in Texas. Okay. Uh, this is a big problem in other places like California and New York, especially because there's quite a few chefs mm-hmm. that have started paying people to go collect that stuff. But right. in Texas, people are, are fairly respectful, it seems. They may dump their trash, but they're not <laughs> digging up the plants. Yeah, I've 
speaking of trash, I'm still surprised too of how much I'll find, you know, I'll give you several miles down a trail and there's still some wrapper I find or a water bottle and it boggles me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm beginner forager. I go out into the woods. What are some of the first few very basic things that I would want to even like just wet my feet in one to forage? Okay. Let's what start with a misconception. Okay. You don't have to go out into the woods. Actually, the woods are kind of a poor place for finding wild edibles. The reason being is the woods is a fairly static environment, and Mm -hmm. so the plant diversity is actually low compared to border areas where field meets wood, where water meets field, things like that. Mm -hmm. So the place you really want to start is at your front or back door. And just look around and see what weeds are in your yard. Um, Usually in the summer, there's big billboards all over Houston that say, we will get rid of your dollar weed for you by spraying down (laughs) these terrible chemicals. You know, you can eat the dollar weed. Identify the dollar weed that's outside your door. It's just a nice round. It it almost looks like a slice of cucumber. Yes. A, a little stalk. And it, when they're young and small, like the size of a nickel or smaller, mm-hmm. they taste like cucumber. Uh, also, right now, there's pony's foot, which looks like dollar weed. But instead of being an intact circle, it has a, a segment out of it. So it looks like the hoof of a pony. There's henbit. Oh. I'm sorry. That was that's dichondra, right? Yep. yep. Okay. Make sure. Right. Okay. So another thing that's uh, common right now is this little purple mint called henbit. Uh, when I say purple, I actually mean the flowers are purple. It has a square stalk, and it has the opposite alternating leaves. So there'll be two leaves directly across from each other. And then if you move up or down that square stalk, the next set of leaves will be at a 90-degree angle to it. At mm-hmm. the top will be a cluster of little tubular purple flowers. And you can use that just as a salad green. And then actually in light of today, the wood sorrel, a.k.a. the shamrock, mm-hmm. it is not a clover. The wood sorrel or the shamrock, if you look at it, it has a heart-shaped leaf, three heart-shaped leaves that's the one you want to eat. That one is really tasty. It has a kind of a tangy, lemony sort of flavor. Clovers have three round or almost football-shaped leaves. They don't have the three heart-shaped leaves. Uh, You can eat clover, but in doing so, it is high in protein, but if you don't prepare it right, it tries to kill you with cyanide. (laughs) So. So right. Identify your plants correctly. Yep. Yeah, the oxalis, I've got tons and tons of it. And ever since I took your class, I've been, you know, cutting it and throwing it in with my my lettuce and other salad greens. And it is, it's a nice little tangy bite when you're mm-hmm. when you're chewing your, your salad. So and um mm-hmm. I told my parents about that. They've been visiting and um they were pretty astounded too. And they're, <laughs> my mom kind of looked at me like you can eat that? What? <laughs> and now she's all about it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you've got some in your yard. Just look for it. Yep. So, so um, uh, now you, so in your area, do you have lots that you go to or are you just going out your back door? Do you kind of cultivate a patch of all these weedy goodness? Actually, a lot of cultivating. I have your basic suburban backyard. It's 30 feet deep, 70 feet wide. And throughout the course of the year, uh, last time I counted, in one year I had 81 different edible plants back there. Mm 
Now, this does include a fig tree and an orange tree, mm-hmm. but there's also things like horseweed and goldenrod and betony and self-heal and some wild grapes and elderberries, uh, dollarweed, pony's foot, yeah. all that sort of stuff. And so how often during the week are you going out there and adding things to your meals? It really depends on how long it takes me to get home in the evening. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. Um, but I usually try and go out every night. Uh, lately, I've been working with a number of brewers and also some distilleries on coming up with some infused flavors for beer, gin, and whiskey. So I've been picking a lot of stuff and experimenting with different extracts from the, the flavors. I'm just looking at my desk right now. I got a ton of cleavers and pine needles and hawthorn leaves and stuff like that soaking in vodka and gin. <laughs> so so basically, you know, most gardeners are going to want to go pull pull all these so-called weeds, but in reality, a lot of them are edible and, you know, some of them are pesky, but <laughs> still edible. Um, so maybe they should think twice a little bit before they just toss things into the compost, right? Oh, yeah. There's actually very few garden weeds that will be poisonous, and most of them are surprisingly nutritious. I actually have a presentation I give to garden clubs called Tossed Salads, the weeds you should be eating rather than throwing out. Where I walk them through all the different weeds in their, their flower beds and their garden and their herb circles. And you can eat this, you can eat this, you can eat this, you can eat this. <laughs> so. Um, so what are some of the weirder ones that maybe people weren't thinking of? You mentioned the, uh, the, the, the betony. Yeah, the betony, um, that's a wild native mint. You find it out in moist, shady, sandy areas. So like along stream banks cutting through the woods where it floods and deposits a lot of sand. There's actually an mm-hmm. old saying, if you have a cold, sell your coat and buy betony. It's a actually a very medicinal mint. It doesn't have the strong mint flavor like peppermint or uh, it has a fairly mild green flavor, but it does have some good medicinal compounds in it, especially for congestion and head colds. Hmm, okay. Um, goldenrod is another one. Most people are familiar with goldenrod in the fall. It has those gold flowers and kind of a pyramid shape and everyone blames it for their hay fever. When actually goldenrod is pollinated by bees, it does not release any pollen into the air. But underneath the goldenrod is ragweed with these little invisible flowers that are just pumping the air (laughs) full of pollen. Yeah. But the goldenrod, to me, the leaves have a nice, uh, somewhat like a black licorice flavor. And I'll throw that in stir fries or dry it and make a tea out of it. Okay. So... Yeah, I was, I was going to ask about the golden red. Can you use the flowers? Are they edible or is it just the leaves? The flowers are edible, but they are usually the last flower available to bees okay. before winter hits. So I leave the flowers for the bees. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Um, now, what about, obviously, you know, dandelions and other things like that that would be common in the garden? Yeah. There's a number of things here in Texas. Uh, I'm not sure. Do you? I'm assuming your 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 podcast is heard all across North America. Or it, it, it um yeah, I think I've got a couple. I've got some European folks, oh, but cool. um, yeah, it's mostly a, a North American thing. Okay, hi Europe. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so here in North America, we have the true dandelion, but there uh, there's also chicory is very common. It looks like dandelion, but with a blue flower. Mm-hmm. 
And there is a plant called cat's ear that looks like dandelion. It's in the same family as the dandelions. And also sow thistle. And there's a false dandelion and even salsify. But most of these uh, are very highly nutritious. They are what are called nurse plants. If you have disturbed, damaged soil that's kind of been stripped bare, Mm -hmm. every time it rains, the minerals, the water-soluble minerals get leached deeper and deeper into the soil. So they quickly end up where most plants can't get to them. The dandelions and these other things come in. They start putting tap roots down. Uh, They can grow without minerals, really, because they can suck the minerals out of the soil, the few that are there. A true dandelion, its root can go down 15 feet into the soil. And others I mentioned uh, go anywhere from eight inches down to six or eight feet. Mm -hmm. But because they have these deep, extensive roots, they can bring these minerals back up to the surface. And so their leaves are loaded with minerals uh, and also vitamins. And in the case of dandelion, even a little bit of protein. The downside for most of these plants is when people see them, it's when they're flowering. And when they're flowering, that plant is pregnant. As soon as that flower appears, it gets pollinated. So Mm -hmm. if you think about it, a pollinated flower, now the plant is pregnant. Right. And so it starts producing a whole bunch of bitter compounds in its leaves. So people won't eat it. Right. Rabbits or deer or things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, There are ways of dealing with that bitterness. You can boil the greens, but that also extracts a fair amount of the water-soluble minerals and vitamins like vitamin C. Right. Um, better things to do are kind of chop up the bitter uh, leaves like the dandelion and cat's ear and that forth and mix them with something more bland like the pony's foot, the dollar weed, the betony, wild violets, things right. of that nature kind of dilute the bitterness. You can also mix it with something sour. The tongue has a hard time tasting sour and bitter at the same time. And so the, the, the sour comes a little stronger. If you do that, you still want to dilute it some, but you don't have to dilute it as much if you were just you know eating a bunch of raw greens. And then my personal favorite, which I learned from mom, is you pour hot bacon grease over the greens ah. and you make a, a wilted salad sort of thing. The heat drives some of the bitterness away. The grease coats your tongue. And so it, it kind of sedates the, the the taste buds, and also you have bacon grease, which I'm fond of. <laughs> right, that's <laughs> a that's a good combination there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so a plant that you know in the last couple of years I've started seeing a lot more of. It's like you know you learn about something and all of a sudden you see it everywhere, <laughs> and yep. that is the yopon leaf, ah. and um. So could you talk about yopon and its edible uses and then maybe sure. some other bigger overlooked plants that are edible like okay. that? Um, with yopon holly, this is that uh, most of the landowners that have it on their property consider it invasive, but it is native. Mm-hmm. It's technically not invasive, but humans are really good at optimizing the, the ecosystem for it. Yes. So it spreads quite a bit. And it's not technically edible. It's a drinkable plant. The leaves of the Yopan holly are the only naturally occurring source of caffeine that grows here in Texas and actually across most of North America. Uh, well, in the case of Yopan holly, it's more of a southern plant. It really doesn't go beyond the Mason-Dixon line. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. but it is a good source of caffeine. It actually pound for pound, the leaves have about half the the amount of caffeine, but they have all the antioxidants and all the other beneficial compounds you get from, say, green tea. But they lack tannins. Tannins are the compounds that make tea bitter if you brew it too long. Right. In the case of Yopan Holly. The leaves can soak for all day long, and the drink never becomes bitter. Uh, it does help if you dry the leaves. As if you think, the plants have a cell wall. All the caffeine and the antioxidants are trapped inside that, that cell. So if you just take the green leaves straight off the, off the bush and drop them in hot water, very little of the caffeine is going to get out. But if you dry the leaves, there's a process, an enzyme that starts breaking down that cell wall. So after two weeks, there'll be plenty of little holes through the, the, the cell wall. And then when you put it in your hot water, you'll get all the goodness. Okay. So you just strip all the leaves off the branch and yep. let it dry. Yeah. I usually just trim like an eight inch six section of the, the branch and have them hanging everywhere. And every day I just strip off. That's enough for what I consider my day's amount of tea. Oh, okay. So you don't need that much at all then. Yeah. Okay. Um, so are there any other interesting shrubs or trees that Ooh. are edible? I mean, I'm sure you there are, but <laughs> like, uh, five, 600 of them. I guess. Um, uh, how about this? Pick a location and I'll see if, you know, what okay, might be let, edible there. Okay. Let's just say Austin. What's in Austin that's Austin. edible? Okay. Yes. Right now. If you go into Austin Parks, you will see all sorts of signs warning you not to pick the morel mushrooms. If you pick the morel mushrooms, you will be fined. Uh, we are just entering morel mushroom season. They start here in the south and work their way north. This is an absolutely fantastic mushroom. but And it's, well, it's very, very common in the Austin area, but you can only harvest it from your own private property. Ah, oh, okay. Uh, I know last year Austin made somewhere close to twenty thousand dollars in fines. Oh my gosh! People illegally picking morel mushrooms from the parks. Holy they actually have signs all over the parks right now. Wow! Warning you not to do that. All right, I didn't know Austin was a hotbed of morels. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, can you? I mean, I've seen them in the Appalachians, but I've never seen them in Texas. So, well, they like uh, basic soils and the Austin okay. chalk. Yeah. Right. The other place you see them is after forest fires in okay. woods all across North America Right, right. in the spring. Okay. So let's head to Fort Worth. What would be in Fort Worth that would be good to forage Ooh. right now? Oh, man. Uh, actually, there's fillery. It's this little funky heart-shaped – it's hard to describe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can picture it in my head, but it, it, it imagine a, a rosette of leaves – the leaves are very wrinkly, but heart-shaped. So they have kind of deep grooves in them where the veins are mm-hmm. with little red spots on them. And the outermost ring of leaves will be a kind of a purple, red, magenta color. I'm a guy. There's red, blue, <laughs> yellow, green. Right. Orange, you know. But uh, it's, it's a very distinctive plant. You can find it on my website. And that's a nice spinach substitute. Okay. Just kind of cook it up. I'll have to Google that one. I've, I've not, I'm sure I've probably seen it somewhere, but I've, I, it's, yeah. I get asked about it a lot. Okay. So. 
All right, let's break out of Texas and do one more. How about, well, there's probably not too much going on in the Northeast right now, but how about the Northwest? Somewhere in the Okay, the Northwest, mushrooms. Mushrooms, mushrooms, mushrooms. One in particular out there is called a reishi mushroom. Mm -hmm. And this is probably one of the most medicinal living objects you will find. Um, I, as a scientist, I hate to call mushrooms plants because they are not plants. They are their own unique creation, not plant, not animal. They kind of have aspects of both. But the reishi mushrooms are antiviral, antibacterial, antifungal. They don't like any other fungus growing in their dead trees, so they kill all that. Oh, wow. And in Japan, there are two commercial uh, cancer medications made from it. One of the materials or one of the compounds from the reishi mushroom protects healthy cells from the damage done by chemotherapy drugs. And then the other chemotherapy drug, or well, it's a it's a, a tumor shrinker. It actually okay. reduces the sizes of tumors. Huh. So that grows all over the place. Um, basically, if you have dead wood with somewhat hot weather, hot being basically above seventy five degrees, okay, and moisture, um, these things grow. They're all over Houston. They're all over Florida. They're all over the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Yeah. So there's not like any danger of people over foraging them then? No, as long as there are dead trees. Right. <laughs> and then each state has its different rules. Right. Of course. Of course. One of the nice things about them, if you take a reishi, a fresh one, and just nail it to a dead tree stump, it drops its spores. And about a year or two later, that dead tree stump will be covered in reishi mushrooms too. Hmm, I might have to uh, try that. <laughs> Um, so I guess, do you have any, um, or see any like common mistakes people do on social media or blogs, YouTube, anything like that with foraging misconceptions, myths that get spread around that you kind of want to dispel? Yeah. Okay. First off the belief that everything is poisonous or you shouldn't try anything unless an expert has handed it to you. If you spend some time and just learn how to properly identify a plant, it's actually very easy to identify plants. There's a few basic structures you need to learn. You know, what does the edge of the leaf look like? What does the veins inside the leaf look like? How are the leaves arranged on the, on the branch? What does the flower look like? How many petals? Things like that. Mm-hmm. I tell people, if you're learning a plant or you're trying to decide if you should eat a plant or not, you know, start out by you know, really at least five different things between the plant you're looking at and your source material should match. Right. And you know, the more you can match, the better. On the other hand, if it says like the leaves should be opposite and they're alternating, yeah. like everything else matches, that's not the plant. Right, right. Big so, hint. <laughs> yeah. And people are either way too cautious or way too bold. Yes. Okay. That right mix. Um, do you have any adventures or mishaps of your own that you want to share? <laughs> you know, I get asked that a lot. I've never had a problem with any plant that I've eaten. I did have a problem once with some grasshoppers, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you read about all these edible bugs, and I, I've eaten June bugs and, and uh, scorpions and a number of other things. But uh, Buddy and I, we were out canoeing, and we put ashore for a bit, and all over the place were these giant grasshoppers. They were probably three inches long, and they were just kind of creeping along. They weren't really jumping, so they were really easy to catch. And we thought, well, you know, what the hey, let's let's catch some and roast them up and eat them. 
Uh, and we did. They tasted great. Uh, they tasted pretty much like steak, actually, hmm. which was kind of exciting. Uh, in retrospect, uh, these grasshoppers, it was the Southern Lubber Grasshopper. Mm. It's a brightly colored grasshopper, lots of reds and yellows and blacks. Think of like if a monarch decided it was now a grasshopper. Right. <laughs> which should have been the clue. Warning. Food of the Southern Lubber Grasshopper is poison ivy. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Oops. But they tasted well. Good. So. That's Living learned well. a lesson. That's for sure. Yep, yep. Um, so you you wrote a book too. Um, yes. You want to talk about that book a little bit? Yes, it is uh, part of the the Idiots Guide series. It is Idiots Guide for Gene. Uh, even though I am based in Texas, the publisher wanted it to cover all of North America, so I had to get uh, plants from all of North America. Luckily, I've lived in Minnesota, South Dakota. New York and Texas. So it was easy enough going through my database of plants and all my pot- photographs. So there are 70 plants that are found and pretty much anywhere except maybe the top of a mountain or deep in the desert, you will be able to find these plants. Okay. The other request by the publisher is they did not want the plants to be things that people had to go on expeditions to find. They wanted stuff that the person could walk out their door and go, oh my gosh, there it is. Right. So it is designed for modern men foraging their neighborhood. Really. Okay. Exactly what I would like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, have you had a lot of, uh, I guess, any feedback from that or, or any it's, good yeah, stuff? Yeah, it's good actually uh, one of the top five best-selling Idiot's Guides ever. Oh, wow. Yeah. The, it was actually inside the, the, the company itself, the publishers, the DK, Penguin, uh, publishing company. It was my editor got an award for producing such an awesome book. Wow! <laughs> I, I will say, here's the thing about idiots guides. The way they work is they find an idiot to write a book. I don't actually get any royalties from it, so I got a one-time payment for writing it, and then they make all the money after it. So, well, it's, it's a stepping stone. I bet you'll come out with yeah. something even I mean, more it's awesome later. It's yeah, right. Something to say, I wrote a book too. <laughs> exactly. Now, you had also a ton of other books out on display when I met at your class. Um, can you go through a couple of your favorites? Yes. Uh, so I used to have a ton of books out for people to look at, and it was just too overwhelming. So I focus now on just books, you know, just 10 books that if you want to pursue foraging, what you should learn. Uh, so there obviously is my book, even though I don't get any, uh, you know, royalties from it. But one of the things that sets the Idiot's Guide Foraging apart from all the others is it has big three-inch by three-inch, multiple three-inch by three-inch pictures of each plant. So the whole plant, the leaf, the flower, the fruit, fruit cut in half. Uh, if there's a toxic mimic, a picture of the toxic mimic and how to tell it apart from the good one, mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. There's also a really good book uh, specifically for Texas uh, by Charles W. Kane, and it's uh, basically Wild Plants of Texas. Mm -hmm. And then, obviously, the Peterson's Guide to Wild Edible Plants. That's kind of the Bible. But I do tell people the Peterson's Guide, it's great for telling you if a plant is edible. It's lousy for going out and finding edible plants. 
So the key to learning edible plants is you identify the plant first and then look it up to see if it's edible, such as right. in the Peterson's Guide or Google it. So the next set of books that I recommend, there's a number of books on plant identification. And in those particular, again, since I'm Texas-based, I'm teaching all over Texas, there's the trees, shrubs, and vines of the Texas Hill Country. Mm-hmm. There is the wildflowers of Texas. Um, there is the marine plants of the Texas coast. Uh, a few others. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Yeah. <laughs> there are my traveling. There's a lot day. of good field guides out there. Yeah. Um, and if you go to the Foraging Texas website, if you scroll down, there's actually a list of the books I recommend. Okay. In regards to mushrooms, I love foraging for mushrooms, but there is a more there more skill is needed in identifying a mushroom than identifying a plant, because there's a lot of similarities in a lot of mushrooms, uh, and there's a lot more toxicity involved in mushrooms if you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. But my absolute favorite mushroom book that I figure anyone wants to learn mushrooms, they should get it. It's 100 Edible Mushrooms by Michael Coe. And what I love about his book is he actually starts you off in a grocery store and you buy a shiitake, a portobello, an oyster, and he walks you through the dissection of them. So later on in the book, when he talks about false gills versus true gills, you've already seen that in a true example in the, you know, okay. the mushroom that you actually held in your hands. Or right. All the other different parts of the mushroom you need to identify. You've already learned really what they look like and you know, how to identify it. Right. In herbal medicine, uh, there's a lot of books out there in herbal medicine. My favorite ones are there's uh, two books by the same author. The author is Charles W. Kane with a K K A N E. He's actually based out in New Mexico, but one book is just called herbal medicine and the other book is Herbal, Medica- uh, Herbal Medicines of the American Southwest. And what I love about these books is he's actually a chemist and a medical doctor. And he spent years going through all the scientific literature, all the tests that have been done on medicinal plants, and pulled out, okay, these are the plants that actually do something. These are the chemicals that you know in the plant that do what they do in the body. This is how you turn that plant into a medicine for you. Okay. So it's all scientific based, which as a scientist, I, I appreciate that. No, I, I, I appreciate that as well because I feel like um, there's a lot of claims for, for some herbal remedies out there that I yeah. feel a little dubious sometimes. And I'm like, I yeah. don't know about that one. So that's, yeah. I will check those two out. Though. Well, where can um, you be seen or Keep, people take a class from you in the next few months where you're giving speaking engagements. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or should they just hop uh, on your website and check you out there. Yeah. Uh, so on www.foragingtexas.com, there's a list of upcoming classes. But uh, like I said, they're all Texas area classes. Uh, later this month, I will be out at Washington on the Brazos. I do work for them. Uh, the way it works really is a state park will bring me out to their park to basically be a fundraiser to, or to uh, draw attention to that park, that nature mm-hmm. preserve, that discovery center, the Houston Arboretum, things like that. Right. And so most of the money, a lot of it goes to them. Right. Um, so yeah, Washington on the Brazos. I'll be, uh, I was just out in the hill country last weekend. 
Um, I'll be out at Cato Mounds Historic Site. Oh, yeah, that's a neat Texas place. In April. Be at the Houston Arboretum in April. Um, I'll be up near Dallas on sometime in early June. Okay. Uh, things like that. And then, I'm, uh, like I said, usually I'm brought out by some organization. Mm-hmm. And so once they get their registration and so forth, link set up, I add the link to my website so people can see it there. Okay. Okay. And what about if somebody wanted to find someone like you, but elsewhere, do you have anybody else you recommend that you're yeah. friends with in the forging? Uh, world? Yeah. So it's up in Austin. Uh, there is a young gentleman by the name of Conrad uh, D. Lawrence. And he does forging classes up in Austin. Uh, he has a meetup page. So if you type in meetup Austin forging, uh, you can find him. Out at Cato Mounds, along with me, uh, uh, Brandy McDaniels, she occasionally does forging and yoga classes. Okay. Uh, out at Cato Mounds. She's really good. Um, those are the main ones. So here in Texas, there's there's not that many. Okay. Uh, there is uh, Mark Sutter out in East Texas. He he has a uh, uh, survival school. It's Texas Primitive Skills, I believe. And as part of his you know weekend or week long wilderness survival, he teaches edible plants in conjunction with other survival skills. Right. And then I work with Spear Survival and Texas Survival School teaching specifically foraging classes. Okay. Okay. Well, where can people find you online and uh, obviously your website and, but do you have social media? I know you're on Instagram, but Facebook and all that. Yeah. So there's the website, the main page, foragingtexas.com. On Facebook, you can find me under Meriwether's Foraging Texas. And on Instagram, uh, it would be Meriwether Forager. And on all those uh, each day I post some plant that I found uh, that's edible or medicinal or poisonous mm-hmm. or otherwise interesting. And I usually try and post at 8 p.m., but today's will be a little late. <laughs> right. So. You actually helped me recently because I've had a plant in my garden that I've been leaving because I wasn't sure what it was. And it was the ranunculus. And I was like, oh, ah. yep, you're going. See yep, ya. Yep. Not a good one. <laughs> so. Well, thank you so much for coming on, talking about foraging. I know pick your brain more, but that'll just mean I'll have to send people to your classes to go pick your brain there. That's okay. And then so. also uh, a lot of people will email me pictures of plants. There's a link on the the website or better yet, post it on the Facebook page. So almost 18,000 people can learn. Oh, wow. So. Yeah, good following then. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of shocking for a guy that eats plants. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you and uh, have a good evening. You too.